read is kind of a representative sample of what we will be talking about um, for this, uh, this message this morning. It's uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your word live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word, that you would convict and convince us that these things are true and that they are good and right and that the most important thing that we can do in life is to decide what to do with the truths that we read. Be with us, Jesus. Grant us grace to make the right decision. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I put my microphone on uh, this morning, and, and uh, I said to Scott, I said, hey, it fits great. What'd you do? He said, I didn't do anything. Maybe your head shrunk some more. So I preach a couple of clinkers, and all of a sudden, your, uh, your headphones fit right. In uh, 1987, the band R.E.M., released one of their most iconic and famous songs, though it never got any higher on the Billboard Top 100, it never got any higher than 69. The song is, of course, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And I think that that sums up exactly how the Christian ought to think and ought to feel about Christ's second coming. We have discussed some scary things in the last few weeks, Uh, as we have looked at Advent and through Advent, through the lens of his first coming, one of the traditional things that that, that the church does during Advent is to also look forward to his second coming. And we've noted that the day of Christ's return, as it does, as it draws near, we should anticipate some things. We should anticipate, first of all, a great tribulation human-made and natural disasters that cause wars and famine and disease. Rampant inflation will happen for the staple foods of the poor while luxury goods are still available for the rich. And we should keep in mind that we in America, generally speaking, are the rich. If you arrived here in a car this morning, and you have a stable shelter situation where you have a roof over your head, and you have more than one pair of clothes, and a reasonable expectation of eating at least two meals today, and if you received a decent basic education, 
that taught you reading, writing, and basic math, you are, by the standards of two-thirds of this world, rich. And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. Not at all. It's the blessing of God upon us. I just say that to give you a perspective on how blessed you truly are, even if you're poor by the standards of America. And so when you read in the book of Revelation about the, the angel breaking the seals and the third seal is broken and the angel says, come, and this rider on a black horse comes and he's holding scales in his hands and he cries out a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. That's Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. That that represents a situation where a person's, a poor person's whole paycheck is going just for basic food. But in all likelihood, that won't be you and I. We will be the oil and wine people. We might have to pay a little bit more for a loaf of bread and the can of mandarin oranges that was shipped halfway around the world to us, but we will probably be fine. It will probably be our brothers and our sisters in Africa or our fellow Christians in Latin America and in the Middle East who will be hungry and hard-pressed. And so when I see something like a war between Russia and Ukraine that suddenly pulls 25% of the world's wheat harvest out of the supply chain, as well as causing the, a shortage of two of the three basic fertilizer chemicals upon which feeding our hungry, hungry planet completely depends, then I take note, and so should you. The tribulations will also include persecution of Christians in a widespread and systematic way. And so when the elites of the world who set the direction of the culture become openly anti-Christian and see very little place for either religious liberty or freedom of speech, when a, a Christian in the UK can be arrested literally for pausing briefly on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic and praying silently in his head, that happened, I, say, I take notice. I think you should too. When a, a member of the Finnish parliament can be hauled in front of the highest court in Finland for tweeting a picture of her Bible open to Romans chapter 1, not once hauled before the Supreme Court, but twice, I pay attention. And you should too. The great tribulation will be followed, says Jesus, by a great apostasy, a great falling away. Professing Christians will turn on Christ and his people, and they will renounce him. Formerly full churches will empty, and people will just drop out for no reason except that being a follower of Christ has gotten inconvenient and costly. When the church is so weak that a pandemic can permanently empty churches of one-third of their members, I take notice, and so should you. In the midst of all of this will arise the figure of the Antichrist, one who blasphemes God and does wondrous signs and demands worship, and he is given liberty to make war on the saints and to overcome them, and some go to prison and some are put to death. Jesus himself says in Luke 21, you will be hated 
for my name's sake. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Or, in the words of King Jesus, now when these things begin to happen, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Luke 21, 28. Oh, loved ones, the wrath of Satan will be unleashed on the people of God precisely because his time is short and he knows it. And Jesus says that when we are hauled before judges and governors and rulers and kings for Christ's sake, that we are not to give any thought or worry about what we will say. Jesus says he will give us the strength we need and the words to say which no one can refute. And he says it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. We won't be afraid and we won't be alone. And what happens next will prove that it was all worth it. Jesus says there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. There will be perplexity and distress among the nations. This is not the Christians now, this is the unbelievers. Men's hearts will quail and fail from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Jesus says the powers of the heavens will be shaken as the prince of the power of the air and his minions see that their time is now up. Lost men and women will cry out to the rocks and to the mountains and they will ask them to fall on them and hide them and save them from the wrath of the Lamb for he is coming on the clouds with power and with great glory. That's going to happen. You're going to see it. Now let's just go through some of these final events as best we can in the time that we've got. As I mentioned just now, there will be signs in the heavens that terrify unbelievers and disasters on the earth. And when you go and you look at the book of Revelation as it describes these things, one of the things that's hard to understand about the book of Revelation is that you have these, these different passages where there's like seals that are broken and each one is a judgment. And you get to the seventh one and it's proclaims something like the return of Christ and the victory of Christ. And then you get to another one, and it's got bowls that angels are pouring out, bowls of judgment, and there are seven of them, and then it ends with the return of Christ. And there's, there's other passages like that. And the question is, okay, are those things going to happen in history kind of one after the other, or are they different takes on the same series of events? In other words, are they retelling the same story over and over again from a slightly different angle? And I think that's probably what's happening. And a lot of these things that God is going to do, when you look at them in Revelation, they look a lot like the plagues that God unleashed on Egypt during the Exodus. Several passages mention God changing the waters so that they are undrinkable. One passage mentions wormwood that falls into the waters and makes the waters bitter. Another passage mentions, uh, uh, talks about them being turned to blood. And if you've ever seen like a red tide in the Gulf Coast or something like that, uh, it's a bloom of toxic algae and it poisons the water and it poisons everything in the water and it turns them red. And in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 3, it says that every living creature in the sea dies. Fiery hail falls and burns up the grass and the vegetation and the trees. 
Unbelievers break out with foul and loathsome sores. And they hurt and they itch and they're disgusting. And they know that this is a curse from God. And they blaspheme God. The Bible actually predicts global warming in the book of Revelation. It says the sun becomes much hotter and it scorches the earth. And lots of lost men and women curse God and blaspheme his name as they cook to death under that sun. A thick and terrible darkness falls, and men and women gnaw on their own tongues because of their fear and their pain, and they further blaspheme God because they know these are judgments upon them. It says there will be a mighty earthquake, an earthquake of such an intensity as human beings have never experienced before since they've been on the earth, and it will shake the whole world. It also mentions a city. A great, rich, powerful city. This city rules the earth and it makes merchants and petty kings all over the earth rich because the inhabitants of this great city buy all their stuff. And that great city shall fall in an instant. Romans chapter 17 talks about that city in the figure of a woman richly adorned with gold and silver and costly stones, who has a cup of gold in her hand. And in that cup are all sorts of abominations and filthiness, which she spreads wherever she goes. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints. Seems to indicate that she is a great naval power because she sits astride many waters. And the peoples of the earth both adore her and hate her. Because she dominates people in their own countries and they resent it. But she also makes them rich and prosperous and they like that. And in one instance, says the scripture, in the space of a day, this city, whatever it is, will fall. And she will fall spectacularly. And the resentment of all of those people will boil over. And it says in Revelation 17 that they will, quote, make her desolate, naked, and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And, and the Bible says that that is God paying back the city double for everything that she has done to the saints. Don't know what the city is. Could be Washington, D.C. Sounds a lot like us. This is only the beginning. You see, Jesus came the first time not to judge the world, but to save it. He comes back a second time to judge it and to strip Satan of all of his power and to avenge the wrongs done to all of his people. Up until this time, mercy has been freely available to anyone who would ask, anyone who would come to Jesus and ask for mercy, ask for forgiveness, ask for pardon, and Jesus would give it. That time is now over. There is no more mercy offered. Now is the time of vengeance, the vengeance of God. You say, well, I thought revenge was wrong. No, you taking revenge is wrong. The Bible says you don't take revenge because you trust that God is going to mete out revenge in the proper way in the proper time. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, and he will. And this is the time when he will do it, and he will do it in spades. 
At some point, the event popularly known as the rapture will take place. I don't like that terminology. It's not a scripture word, but that's what everybody calls it. So the, the, the kind of the most common view floating around among Christians today is that the church will be raptured away before any of this bad stuff happens. And so everything that the Bible describes is going to happen to um, the people who are left. And anybody who comes to Christ during that time will have to figure things out. This is called a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, I'm not a fan of this view. I think there are some problems with it. Um, First of all, there are really only two passages in Scripture that talk about this event with any kind of clarity. And I'm just going to ask you if you've got your Bible to open to them. The first one is in 1 Corinthians. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a really long chapter. We're not going to read very much of it. I'll say that for your encouragement. But chapter 15 and verse 50, we have uh, a description of this event. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That was apparently in my old church that was on the wall of the nursery at one point in time. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Took you a minute. Little grenade there. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So I want you to notice something. When will this happen? The last trumpet. Okay, just keep that in mind. Now turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So note that the Lord descends from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I want you to notice something. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says that the Lord Jesus descends from heaven, the dead rise in the air, to meet him, and the living saints are then transformed in the twinkling of an eye, and they rise to meet him too. Okay? 
That's how the Bible describes this event. Those who developed pre-tribulation rapture view, which is really only about 100 years old, say that this return of Christ to rapture the church away before the tribulation is a secret return just to rapture the church away. In other words, they say Jesus comes partway back, everybody goes up to see him, and then everybody goes back to heaven together, and then the tribulation happens. And then he comes back again later. And that's his third coming. But nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that the second coming of Christ is in secret and the third coming of Christ is in glory. Look at how the event is described. And that's the second problem. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, it also talks about how Jesus will return, and it doesn't seem very secret to me. The Lord Jesus himself descends with a shout. Now, when God shouts, you hear it. The archangel cries out in a loud voice. When an archangel cries out in a loud voice, you hear it. The trumpet of God sounds. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, it describes that trumpet as, quote, the last trumpet. Trumpets are kind of noisy. Trumpets were actually designed to be heard by troops over the noise of battle so that they could be commanded and told what to do at a distance. In other words, there are no secret trumpets. Now, when is this last trumpet? We don't look to the book of Revelation for that. We look to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 30. 31, 29 through 31. So when does Jesus say this last trumpet is? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 29, when will this happen? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, the picture seems to me, as I read the scriptures, to be something like this. Life will get very hard for us, very hard. And then at the appointed time, Christ will appear in glory, and everyone will see it, and the dead in Christ will rise, and they will join Jesus in the air, Those of us who are alive will be transformed and we will all be caught up together with the Lord Jesus in the air and then we shall turn and descend with him behind him. And the whole world will see him and they will see us with him. And everyone will see him. And they will know in that horrible moment for them, how badly they screwed up by hating him and hating us as much as they have hated us. And there will be cries of utter despair. This is the moment you and I 
are longing for. This is the moment the children of the devil are dreading. Because after these things will come the judgment. And this judgment will be penetrating. It will be searching. Every idle word will be brought to your remembrance. And the Lord will say, see this? Every filthy thought, every secret mean deed. And if you're not in Christ, all of these things are written down. And you will be held accountable for all of it. And the verdict will be guilty. And you will be cast into a lake of fire forever for what you have done. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 comments on who the people are who go into the lake of fire. The list is kind of interesting. It starts with cowards. Cowards, the unbelieving, the abominable. I had to look this one up. I was like, what does abominable actually mean? I mean, we think about the abominable snowman or the abominable performance of the Steelers for the last few games. But what does that word really mean? Well, the, it's been bad. Yesterday was good, but it's been pretty bad, right? The Greek word is ebdelugmenois. Now get this, guys. I did not make this up. It comes from the word bideo which means to quietly break wind or to stink. In other words, these are those SBDs, the silent but deadly ones, you know? And, and you, somebody lets one of those go and everybody's hair falls out and everybody's eyes start watering. Those are the abominable. That's what, they're speaking metaphorically now of their heart, of their behavior. These are people who are just so in love with filth that they reek of it. And along with cowards and unbelievers are murderers, the sexually immortal, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. It says all liars. What's it take to get a one-way ticket to the lake of fire? Just be a liar. Just be a coward. Fear men more than you fear God. That'll do it. Just be unbelieving. Just be, you know, I don't, I don't believe. I don't doubt, I doubt that. That's all it takes. People think those are little sins. They think they're trivial things. Just to be an idolater, you don't have to worship a foreign god to do that. You can be idolater, an idolater and still attend church faithfully every Sunday. All you have to do is have some created thing be more important to you than God. And it will usually be a good thing which God has given you, like your children or securing the future you think best for your children, or your own career, or your spouse, or your mom. If you find yourself thinking about something that Christ wants you to do and saying to yourself, I can't do that because it would make mom really angry if I did, then you're an idolater. You are. The most important person in your life is not God. It's mom at that point. And mom, I, I hate to tell you, but your mom is usually a very poor God. She will not do much for you. Not spiritually. What do you have to do? You have to repent. You have to turn to Jesus and seek his forgiveness and prove your repentance by your deeds, as Paul says to Porcius 
Festus in Acts chapter 26. Here's the thing that you need to take away from all of this. This is not speculation about the future, which none of us probably will ever see. This is not like the Browns winning the Super Bowl. It's just never going to happen. You will see it. And that's true whether you are saved or lost. You will see it. You will experience it. Not only that, one way or the other, you will experience it in a resurrected body. Both Paul in Acts 24.15 and the Lord Jesus himself in John 5.28 and 29 teach clearly that both the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected. And the lake of fire will be experienced in a resurrected body. And so will the new heavens and the new earth. What we know today as heaven and hell are temporary arrangements. They're places to park our souls, so to speak, until the resurrection. And the resurrection will come. And Jesus has promised it. And his resurrection itself is the pattern and down payment on that promise. In a billion years, you will be experiencing either bodily bliss, which you cannot now imagine, or bodily torment, which you cannot now imagine. I don't know if you've ever been seriously burned. Have you? I have. When I was in college, I was working at a shell station. And I came in, it was a holiday weekend, it was very busy, and one of the guys said, hey Brian, go put your uniform on and check that Cadillac, see if the thermostat's stuck, it's overheating. So I did, and I knew it was hot, but I didn't know how hot it was. And you can take the cap off of a hot radiator, if you're foolish and skillful, um, without burning yourself. You just got to do it that first click and release the pressure and stay out of the way, and then you can take it off. Well, there was so much pressure in that coolant system that I did it that first click, and it just blew the cap off. And it covered the whole right side of my face and head with scalding hot antifreeze. I can still remember seeing that green wave out of the corner of my eye as it washed up and hit me on the side of the head. It was excruciating. And it only lasted a second. Second and third degree burns all over my face and head. This burning will last forever. And people you know will experience it. It will happen. Whether you believe it or not, it will happen. You will experience it. And you need to decide what you will do with that information. My advice is to repent, to believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to learn how to walk with him closely for the rest of your life, and then tell everybody else that you know what's going to happen so that they can get ready for it. Everybody else that you know needs to know what you know. You know, it's been really good for me to be uh, getting involved in this Friends Around the World ministry because um, one of the, I used to be a Baptist, and one of the things I had kind of forgotten about kind of Baptist subculture is that they, their whole church life is really programmed around evangelism and personal witness and testimony of Christ and sharing Christ with people. And they just love it and they live for it and they do it all the time. And I was having lunch with several of these people and I'm sitting here at the table with two Americans, a Mexican, and an Indian. 
all of who were come, have come to Christ, and, and, uh, and I was just like, man, this is just, it's good to be around these people and to get this refresher and, and just evangelistic zeal. We, we need that here, folks. We need that again. Correct doctrine is not going to pack them in. Inviting them to come see Jesus and meet Jesus will. What will it be for the saints? I've talked about the bad news. What's the good news? What will it be for the saints? It will be glorious. It will be glorious. I think a lot of people do not desire heaven because they don't understand what's waiting for us. And uh, I just want to read something from C.S. Lewis if I can find it here. Oh, here it is. Wrong. I've got too many bookmarks in here. C.S. Lewis writes in The Problem of Pain, I think some of the most beautiful words. You see, God created you and he put a longing for heaven inside of you, but you don't recognize it as a longing for heaven. And it comes different ways to different people. For some people, it's a, you know, a smell. Or for some people, it's a, a, an image or something that they see in a movie or something like that, where they look at that and they long to just be in the middle of that. You know, I think part of the reason it's a wonderful life for a lot of people is a movie that they enjoy this time of year is because they, they look at a, a place in the movie that is a good place, except for Mr. Potter. It's a good place. And everybody loves George, and they love his family. And he participates and contributes to the community in ways that he hasn't even recognized. And when he has a chance to see what it would be like without him, he's appalled. And he comes back, and he's so grateful for all these people. And I think that is just a little, like a picture, just a, a dim picture of heaven. And I think there's a lot of people that go, oh, I wish I lived in that town. I wish I lived in that town. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul. The incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All of your life, this is, I love this, all of your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Tonight, if you return, I'm going to talk about what heaven will be like. What's waiting there for us. I'm going to put the whole Bible story into one concise, less than 30-minute sermon. And I want to invite you to come back. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for the promises. And we know that when you make a promise, we don't have to worry about you keeping it. It will be fulfilled. In your time, in your way, often in ways that surprise us, it will be better than we ever thought it could be. Because you are good, and you are wise, and you are powerful, and you love us so much. 
Help us, Jesus, to love you back. In your name we pray.